So on a wall in what is called Palatine Hill in Rome, they found an inscription, and I think I've shared this picture with you before. It's an inscription, uh, something scrawled on a wall that now, it now sits in a museum, but scrawled on that wall was the first or the earliest instance of mockery of Christians that we have available to us. And what it depicts is ostensibly a picture of Jesus on his cross, and Jesus has a, a horse or a mule's head on him, and there is a, a figure at his feet that is bowing down before that horse-headed Savior, and scrawled on the inscription, it says, Alexamenos worships his God. And it's again the, the very first recorded moment that we have available to us of anyone being ridiculed openly in a public way for that belief. Fast forward to about three weeks ago to Glasgow, Delaware, um, not, fo- not so far from here. A sister church of ours was set on fire by an arsonist. We don't know the motive. Uh, the damage was not extensive, uh, but it was enough to really rattle a community. And that represents one in perhaps several church burnings that you've heard about in recent weeks. And we won't call it a trend, but would certainly be unsettling for anybody that experiences it. When you consider the places on this planet where there is a coordinated, malicious form of persecution in which harassment and imprisonment and some people even dying are happening in a real way, more often than we like to admit, when you, when you see that in comparison to the mockery that was shown back in the second century and even to the arsonist that set fire to a church just a few weeks ago, those, those other experiences really don't compare. They, they're, in the grand scheme of things, a trifling. But the truth of the matter is, anywhere you are and at any time you are, there comes a point in which if you are public with what you believe or you let the implications of your belief become a matter of public record, you should not be surprised if you are met with some form of opposition, even if it's subtle. Uh, The subtlety of that opposition can come in the form of accusations that are hurled against you that are based on false assumptions. Uh, That subtle form of opposition can come in access to opportunities or institutions that you're denied. Those those assumptions, those accusations, that, that denial of access, they can all represent a kind of opposition that is real, that is true, and that is not something that you can simply sniff away or sneeze away. And I even asked your staff this week, do they have any stories of what it was like in their own pilgrimages? Have they ever found or met um, with opposition simply because of their belief? And several of them had stories, whether it was ridicule that came from friends or accusations of being irrational from college professors or even outright hostility from the mayor of a city. All of them. They weren't being beaten or bruised, but they were being opposed for their belief. And that is why we've been listening to Peter's letter for these several weeks. Because I think in the passage that we're going to look at today, which is really on the downhill slope of his whole letter, that's really what he's been building to for the entirety of the letter. Because he knows full well what it means to be thought strange by your surrounding community and that that strangeness 
comes across in a way that you're, you're met with opposition that is f- lacking fully in charity. And in this passage today, we're going to let Peter tell us what he's been out to do in those he's listening to from the very top of the letter. And that is to tell them that they have, in the face of that opposition, reasons and resources to be resilient. Strangely resilient. And we're going to look at that resilience from three angles. Resilience like, like that of a tree that you know, withstands the onslaught of weather. Or the resilience of a building that too, again, insulates us from harm or from danger. We're going to listen to him talk about the nature of resilience from, in three ways. Uh, three things that resilience isn't. Two things that resilience is. And one thing that makes resilience even possible. One thing upon which it all hangs. Three things it isn't, two things it is, and one thing that makes it possible. So again, I hope that you might lean in and listen well to hear what Peter has to say about a strange kind of resilience. The central text for today is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Three things it isn't, two things it is, one thing upon which it depends. Let's first of all talk about the three things that resilience isn't. The first thing that resilience isn't that Peter's out to tell us is that resilience is not shocked by opposition. It's not surprised by it. You heard it say that in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, what does he mean by a fiery trial? He doesn't explain. There's no specificity there. You've got to kind of, you know, rewind his tape and, and discover that at times he talks about, you know, harsh accusations that come their way or, or, or treatment that's based upon false perceptions of who they are or ridicule just for their belief. That's the point of opposition that they're facing. And in the face of that, Peter is saying, you've got to set aside that that initial response that anybody would feel, like the wind getting knocked out of you, you got to set aside the, the shock of what's happening to you because it's not out of the ordinary. You shouldn't think it to be out of the ordinary. It's, it's what Paul tells Timothy. Paul tells Timothy in, in, what is it, 1 Timothy 3, he says, um, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It, it's the nature of of the belief. It's what Jesus says, nothing less to his own disciples in John chapter 15. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's the nature of what it means to follow him. And so when it comes, in whatever way it comes, whether it is severe or subtle, it'll hurt. Just 
Just don't be appalled by it. Because look, if, if you say aloud that there is a, a dark streak that runs through every human heart, um, you might get a lot of nods of approval. Some people might agree with you. But at the same time, you are cutting across wide swaths of modern thought about the very nature of our humanity. Or if you, if you say aloud that Jesus is Lord, not just that he is a religious Lord, but that he is Lord of Lords, um, it is likely that even if they don't say it, they will think it, that you are narrow, or that you are bigoted, or that you are on the wrong side of history, or that you are an impediment to the progress of the society at large. And all of those things are a demonstration of what it would mean to feel that opposition, and yet he's saying, don't let that set you off. Don't be surprised by it. Just for what you believe, that might come. And when it comes down to the implications of that belief, the, the ethical implications of your belief, of, of living out that faith in practice, just for instance, in some of you are in various vocations, and it's entirely conceivable that in some workplace scenarios that um, somebody that's a colleague of yours or a boss of yours, they might at some time ask you to act in a legal way, but in an unethical fashion. To, to leave out certain facts in a report, to, to fudge certain numbers, to give off a certain impression, or to shift blame to somebody else to get the heat off of you and your department. In, in situations like that, depending on where you are in the org chart, to speak up or to speak out, it, it shouldn't be surprised it's going to cost you. And that's what Peter's out to say in you. Don't be surprised if that kind of opposition depends on you. That's why John Stott, the late Don Stott, an Anglican uh, theologian, he said this, the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. It happens. That's what Peter's telling us. And we shouldn't be shocked. But the second thing that, that resilience is not, not only is it, should it not be surprised, the strange resilience in the face of opposition is also not ashamed. It is not hollowed out and left alone, as it were. And that's what he says there in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now, for Peter to use the word Christian there, it was a new way of referring to Christians. Um, it, it took a while for that name even to take off, and the first people even to coin the phrase did not do so as a mere description or as a mark of affirmation, but actually as a pejorative comment. If you were a Christian, you were the, the silly cuddly, but potentially seditious, if not blasphemous, dangerous little Christlets. You little followers of this dead sage. That's what it meant to be a Christian. And in that moment, with that name, you would have been ridiculed. And in what they called those cultures, shame and honor cultures, in which what your reputation was determined whether you would be excluded from the wider society or included in that wider society, if you were known as a Christian, it was not unlikely for you to be experienced exclusion because you were considered strange, because you were considered odd. And if you're associated with Jesus, you're going to experience that exclusion. And if you're feeling excluded, if you've ever been excluded, whether it was on the, the, the recess uh, ballpark 
or in the middle of class, you could tend to let that exclusion and that sense of shame be internalized. And Peter is saying, don't let them get you down. Don't give in to the shame. Um, In our day, when it comes to shame, there will be some who will shame the church for its behavior in history. And at some level, there's credibility to the claim. There are plenty of things for which the church, if it is honest with itself, has a right to be shamed for its actions. And yet the irony of being shamed in this day and age is that those who are shaming the church are not using standards that come from outside of Christianity, but actually are using standards that come up from within it. This is not a thought that is unique to my own. There are many others that have made that same claim. The idea in this day is that most criticism, most shame that is heaped upon those who are Christians is not necessarily for the beliefs that Christians hold, but for the distorted ways in which they've exhibited those beliefs. Peter is saying, fine, if people would shame the church for its distorted behaviors, that's one thing, but don't be ashamed for the beliefs that actually are the standards by which people are using to shame. Now, so far, a strange resilience is not to be surprised by the opposition. It's not to be ashamed of the opposition. And you have to ask yourself, why? why does Peter even need to say that? Why does he feel it necessary to go there? For two reasons, one of which I think should be pretty obvious. One is that if you are shocked by the opposition, if you are shamed by the opposition, you're tempted to be demoralized. To, to turn inward, to, to hide, to adopt a, a posture, I'm just going to be silent, I'm, I'm going to be entirely private, I will never be public with it. But, but there's another temptation to which we're all subject when it comes to the, the shock of surprise or the shock of shame. And, and if we think of those two ideas as emotions, maybe just emotions, raw emotions in that moment, what you're tempted to do is not just be demoralized by it, but perhaps on the flip side to become antagonistic to be provoked, to, and, and in the midst of feeling antagonistic, you, you, you are tempted to forget something fundamental about your identity, and you're also tempted to become the very thing that you're out to despise. And that's why there's a third thing that strange resilience isn't. It's, it's not surprised, it's not ashamed by opposition, but it's also not a schmo. Now that's a technical term from the Yiddish language, and because this is a family show, it is a family-friendly update to another Yiddish word that I shall not name. But to be a schmo, from a Yiddish perspective, is to be a jerk. Just a plain old jerk. And, and Peter has to speak to that way, kind of in a tangential way, when he says there in verse 15, um, where is it? But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or even as a meddler. Now, why does Peter even need to say that? Because there was a confusion in that day that he's out to bring a certain clarification to, and he realizes that if you're a Christian in that day, there is opposition that can come your way because you're acting in line with Jesus, and then there's opposition that can come your way because you're actually walking in a way patently antithetical to what Jesus is all about. A very uncharitable way. Evildoing, murder, meddleness in this. Look, friends, in our day, what may seem like an odd attempt to make a clarification in that day is nevertheless still necessary for us. We're in need of a clarification of our confusion because um, 
Is it not true that we are in a season that is ripe to let opposition provoke us? Are we not in a moment where we are tempted to act and speak, whether it is with people who come from other traditions or to people from within our own faith, that is actually an undermining of our own witness in the world? Do we not feel the temptation when it comes to arguments to simply value winning more than understanding? Is it not true that we are perhaps tempted to be delighted by exposing someone for their folly more so than actually trying to find truth? Chloe Valdery is a name I've recently become introduced to and one that I would heartily commend you to become introduced with. Chloe Valdery is a someone who was raised in a Christian tradition that was uh, very tightly bound to observance of the Jewish traditions of, of respecting the Jewish uh, pedigree from which Christianity was born. And she has developed her own social-emotional intelligence curriculum called the Theory of Enchantment. And that Theory of Enchantment rests upon three tenets. And they all go like this. One, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Two, Criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. Three, root everything you do in love and in compassion. You, you hear what's, where that comes from, right? I don't have to tell you where she's coming up with those ideas, right? She has her finger on the pulse of culture. She knows what everybody is tempted with. To treat others as political abstractions. To speak in such a way as to tear down. She knows what we're up against. And every one of those alternatives that she's trying to offer, another alternative to, that's what it means to be a schmo. And that is not an expression of resilience, to act in those ways. That form of defensiveness is not resilience. It's something quite different. And that's what we have to talk about. Not only what is resilience not. Three things that it's not. Now let's talk about two things that resilience is. And it's even more straightforward. Resilience in the face of opposition is, first of all, something that rejoices. Listen to verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In the face of opposition, he's saying there is a capacity for joy, for gladness, and for blessing. And if, there's, if we wonder, where does he come up with that? It's because his own experience testifies to it. He knows of that joy. He knows of that blessing in the face of opposition. Because you may remember us telling that story again from a few weeks ago. He, with some of his other fellow Christians, they're out speaking of Jesus in public. They're accosted. They're arrested. They're interrogated. They're lambasted. Eventually, they're released. And it says there in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, as they're walking home, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Just think about the psychology of that for just a moment. They've, they've just been nearly beaten up, threatened with a long-standing imprisonment. They are released. They're certainly happy about that. But what are they more happy about? That they've been considered worthy and you have to ask yourself, where does that psychology come from? What's the, what's the joy of it? Where's the, where is the blessing that? How can that be? You remember the movie uh, Dead Poets Society, right? Uh, Professor Keating 
introduces these uh, very regimented, um, uh, very um, regimented young men preparing for college whose only aspiration is to uh, get their degree and, and find vocations that make a lot of money. And Professor Keating introduces them to a, a whole other world of literature and love and what it means to be a man and what it means to live and to seize the day. And, and yet in time, as you know that story, Professor Keating is eventually ripped of his credentials and caused to, to leave that post. And all of the men and all of these young men that had followed him are deeply distraught, at losing their men. And in this scene that I'm about to show you, I think you get a taste of where you can start to feel joy and blessing in the face of opposition. Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph... Mr. The Keating, they made everybody Why, sign it. you got to believe me, it's true. I do believe you, Tom. Leave, Mr. Keating. But it wasn't his fault. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. One more outburst from you or anyone else, and you're out of this school. Leave, Mr. Keating. I said leave, Mr. Keating. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you? You hear me? Oh, Captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warn you. Sit down. Sit down, all of you. I want you seated. Sit down. Leave, Mr. Keating. Music, the looks on their faces, but mostly the look on Professor Keating's face. Thank you, boys. He's grateful. His work was not in vain. And in that moment, you are feeling this certain joy that rises up in them to, to face something that they may never have had the courage to do so in the past because they are marked. They are marked as one who is beloved of one that they love. And what Peter is out to say is that True resilience rejoices in the opposition because it marks you as one who belongs to him. 
It marks you as one who is sharing, if only just a slice of what he himself faced. And in, and in, in the admiration of what he faced, you are partaking of that. And in that solidarity, there is a certain kind of intangible sort of blessing in it. You rejoice in it. You, you love that you're part of it, even though it costs you. And that's why even Paul himself, he, he will say, he, in his own afflictions, he is filling up uh, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by what he takes upon himself. He is participating in the very same work that Jesus himself has done. And in that is joy. And in that solidarity, even in the midst of opposition, you are enlarged. You are enlarged more than being shriveled up in the face of what is costing you. And that joy is because it's what avoiding opposition gains you no longer seems as attractive as it once did. That what you are out to protect and preserve and defend in yourself by trying to avoid the opposition, it, it is no longer is as important to you as being public and being faithful even if it costs you. And that is because of the other mark, the second mark of what strange resilience is. It is rejoicing because it glories in something in other than what it's afraid to lose. And that's sort of a, a thick sentence. It, resilience rejoices because it glories in something other than what it is afraid to lose. Listen again to what he says in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What does it mean to glorify? What does it mean to glorify God? It means to magnify the worth of who God is to you in your words and in your actions. That's what it means to be resilient. It is in speaking for him or in living out for him. That is what it means to magnify him. If I might use an illustration, a bear walked across my street this week and God forbid, if my wife and I had been on the walk when we encountered that bear and the, berg, and the bear would have emerged from the verge to come and attack us had it so been so inclined to do so. And I push my wife out of the way and I take on the bear myself and I, and I suffer wounds as, a, as an account of tangling with that bear. In that moment, I am magnifying the worth of my wife. I am, I am setting her aside and I'm taking the blows upon me to, to speak of her worth for me. And I am... I am glorying in the name of being her husband in that way. That's in part what it means to glorify God where you, as you value something as greater than what you're afraid to lose. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he is a man who was raised in a Mennonite faith. He, he left that faith as a young adult and then he returned to it later, coming to be recaptivated by who Jesus is. And he asked himself the question, what what led me to leave and, and what led me to return? And in a book that he wrote called David and Goliath, which, which thinks of that story in a fresh way, one of the last stories he tells is a story about a, a small French town near the Swiss border called La Chambon during World War II. And La Chambon was uh, known for its being a little pocket of resistance against the Third Reich. And with the Nazi presence there, there was um, a small... Uh, French Huguenot Church. And if you were a French Huguenot, you were a French Calvinist of the time. And that French Huguenot Church was led by a pastor by the name of uh, Father, uh, Reverend Trocmé. And they were very vocal about their desire uh, to be 
um, in line with the gospel and not uh, to be afraid of the Third Reich. And therefore, they refused to give the salute whenever the Nazis would come to town. And they even were so audacious as to write a letter to the local Nazi contingent when they said this, We feel obligated to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, received the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. This was not the first time that these French Huguenot Christians had faced opposition. For centuries, they had been accosted and persecuted by any number of different contingents, and they had learned to step up in moments like this. They had learned to incarnate the very resilience. Why? Because they had come to value something and see it as more beautiful than anything that they might be afraid to lose. And you know who was most impacted by that story? Malcolm Gladwell. Because when he explains what sort of effect that story and others had on him, he said this, maybe we have difficulty seeing the weapons of the Spirit because we don't know where to look or because we are distracted by the louder claims of material advantage. But I've seen them now and I will never be the same. Resilience rejoices in glorifying that which has greater value to you than anything of material value to that you might be afraid to lose. And that's where resilience comes from. That's the joy of being able to face that. And the question that still will plague us, and the last question we have to ask ourselves is this. Fine, if resilience is not about being surprised or shocked or being a schmo about opposition, and resilience is about rejoicing and glorifying something greater than what I might lose, how do I cultivate that? Where does it come from? One of the most difficult parts of this whole passage is in what Peter talks about in the way of judgment. A judgment that will come upon the world, but a judgment that is beginning with the household of God. We are not unfamiliar with, with the New Testament or the Old Testament speaking about judgment, but what does Peter mean about judgment beginning with the household of God? And, and, and more importantly, what does that have to do with facing opposition and being resilient? You remember what happens to Peter, right? Peter just before he denies Jesus three times, just before he responds to opposition, not with resilience, but with retreat. You know what Jesus says to him, remember? He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you all like wheat. He's talking about, what, what, is that, what does that mean? Sifting you like wheat. Uh, farmers, um, who would harvest their wheat, they would take those grains and they would put it in these irons and they would sift it. They would agitate it. Why? To separate the wheat from the chaff. And Jesus is saying that to you, Peter, and to all of you who follow me, you are being agitated that you might be separated from me. That's Satan's intention. And by the end of the night, it seems pretty clear Satan seems to be rather successful, that he has separated them all. They've all abandoned him in his darkest hour, despite even Peter's great bravado. But what does Jesus also say to Peter even before he denies him? He says, Simon, Simon, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen 
your brothers. Jesus knows that Peter's going to deny him. Jesus knows that he's going to have three opportunities to demonstrate resilience, and every single one of them, he's going to retreat into the background or even pretend that he never even knew him. And in the midst of that, Jesus still prays for him and still believes that Peter will reckon with what he's done and have remorse for what he's done and return onto the first love that he had. And then he says, go tell your buddies what it was like. Tell them what you did, but tell them more so what I told you. Beloved, the resilience that you and I are going to need now and maybe more so in the not-too-distant future rests almost entirely on what Peter says in the last verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. That word there for entrust is the Greek word peritathemi. And it just so happens that one of Jesus' final words upon the cross is him saying to his Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That word there for commit is the same word for entrust. Jesus is laying before his Father to use his life, but moreover his own death, as his Father would. And in entrusting himself to his Father in that way, he is not just showing us the gospel. He is demonstrating for us the ground upon which any resilience might grow. Because in that moment, Jesus is offering to us through his resilience against opposition, the very thing that might inspire beauty and courage in us to demonstrate our own resilience. But at the same time that he is dying amid opposition to offer us love and forgiveness, he is also providing us a ground for resilience in what he said to Peter there just before he denied him. For Jesus to say, I'm praying for you, and that when you turn back, strengthen your brothers, he is extending to him grace in the midst of his failures of resilience that gives us reason to believe that he might show us grace when we have also failed, that we might stand to our feet and stand in that grace again with resilience. What does that resilience look like? I've told you the moments in which your staff faced opposition. Let me tell you and end this sermon by telling you how your staff faced that opposition with their own forms of resilience. Rather than reflexively retreating from the opposition, they told us stories of relating to the one that opposed to them, to understand them, to, to be in relationship with them, to engage with them in whatever ways they could. And rather than retaliating against recrimination that might come towards them for being irrational and stupid and narrow and bigoted, they, they reflected upon that criticism. They wondered if there was something to learn from someone who had such passionate disdain in this regard, if only to understand and to show respect. And rather than recoil from hostility that might come their way, they responded with truth to the extent that someone would listen. And in each one of those instances, in each one of those stories, from your very staff, what you're hearing is what it means not only to demonstrate resilience, but what it means to entrust yourself to a faithful creator, believing that what they have to gain in being faithful is far greater than what they have to lose 
in avoiding opposition at all costs. Brothers and sisters, and anybody who might be watching, this is what resilience looks like. And by his grace, we might learn to walk in it too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.